and welcome to the NBA Podcast. My name is Justin Pierce and I'm the editor. Today's podcast is one in our series called Masters of Media, where we speak to heads of media at brands to find out exactly what, what the role means today and how on earth they keep on top of the fragmenting media landscape. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Ross Sargent. He's head of media and touchpoints at Asahi Europe. So, Ross, hi, and welcome to the Masters of Media NDA podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So before we kick off, let's find out a bit about you. Uh, do you want to give us a bit of intro to yourself, where you work, what you do there, and maybe a bit about you know what your career history was to date before then? Sure, yes. Uh, so I am Ross Sargent. I am the head of media and touchpoints at Asahi Europe and International. Touchpoints is a way of saying not just digital, but also the things that you see in pubs, clubs, bars, and restaurants and grocery stores. Um, AEI, as we are, is we are uh, part of Asahi uh, Group Holdings. Uh, Asahi is the third biggest brewer in the world. Uh, it's a massive brewer in Japan. We are a bit outside of Japan and outside of Australia because Australia is Colton and United Breweries, uh, which is a massive business. So we work from Canada, the US, throughout Africa, all the way through Europe, in Asia, as well as China. Uh, we have eight different breweries, 19 production facilities, um, and lots of different languages and cultures and people, which is really, really exciting. And that last bit is exactly why I joined this particular business, because uh, previously I'd been involved in businesses that were mostly, you know, Britain and America and a bit of Europe. Uh, and this is really, really great to get stuck into places like Australia and China. Um, I have a history in media for 20 years. I, I did a similar job at Heineken. Uh, in South Africa, I did a similar job at Diageo in the UK many years ago. Um, in between all of those, I started uh, my own media agency. I also worked at three media agencies. Two of them were really, really good. One of them was not so good. Um, <laughs> and I think I learned more from the disastrously bad media agency about how to do good media um, than I learned anywhere else, which is good, uh, really good. I actually, I actually retired about four years ago. I sold my agency and I stopped working and my husband and I moved to England and uh, back to England for me. And he said, I've got to go and get a job. So, uh, you know, this was, this was the thing for me to do. And it was a really, really exciting company, which is expanding rapidly. Um, it had bought a whole bunch of facilities and breweries and was putting them all together. And, you know, I, I was, I was told it's a, it's a blank page. You can, you can do pretty much whatever you, you feel is right. And after three months in the role, I came back and I said, that's, you know, this is this is great because I see you've got nothing of the things that I want to do. And also you're open to everything that I do want to do. So it's it's been fantastic for the last two years. And the plans that we'd be building on are now starting to come into play. So awesome place to be. Amazing. Great background. I'd love to find out who that media agency was that so disastrous. But I guess it's that's a bit neat to go into that. Uh, so let's talk about the role itself, um, head of media, what it means today. So obviously you've been, without sounding rude, been around for a long time. You've seen the industry develop and change. Uh, so what what is the how what's been the biggest change you think over the last let's say five years in terms of what a head of media means at a brand? Um, well, I think I think the last two years have given us time to reflect. So it's it's a good comparison to say five years. Um, I think five years ago we were we had all these metrics. We had everything coming at us which is very exciting if you if you are a numerate to be able to get a, a spreadsheet with 500 columns of all these fantastic lovely metrics and every single line item you might ever want you can always do stuff with that 
So we had all these things coming up uh, from Facebook and programmatic, but also from the outdoor people for some reason. And the normal broadcast people would tell you that this is the cost per acquisition figure for your TV ad. Um, and, and we had all this information, and I think everybody was grappling with what to do with it. At the same time, we had organic social media, which was, uh, you know, maybe some companies were solving it five years ago, but very few in the bigger scheme really were. And we just had this, this deluge of creative rubbish that was coming out because we had teams of people that we sat down to say, your job is to do social media. So obviously the person was doing the right thing for themselves, which was, let's just create a whole bunch of irrelevant content. Um, so we had this, this, this attribution models which didn't really mean anything. We had these metrics which were telling us lots of information which wasn't the right information. And we had this, uh, this crazy situation where uh, every single agency, including the ad agencies, we're producing a whole bunch of content which didn't make sense. And, and that's changed. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a significant change in the last five years. So, you know, today I think what, what, we, what we're dealing with the most is really trying to understand the science behind what we're doing, having a much, much better respect for the scientists that work in our field. And I don't mean people like me or ad agency people who take spreadsheets and draw some spurious outcomes from them. Like it turns out that you should only do TV ads now, or it turns out that outdoor is the best thing ever from the Outdoor Publication Society. I mean, actually going to proper scientists and universities and, and funding studies that are peer reviewed. Um, so I think that's, and that's not just me, there's a lot of people involved in that. Um, the other thing I think has really um, changed over the period is under, trying to understand what the outcome is. So we, we had a really good conversation in one of the markets early, early this morning, talking about, you know, we're clear that sales isn't the only outcome we're trying to model or understand or affect. Is it also attention? Because that's what a lot of people are speaking about. Is it something else? Is it next year's sales? Um, and I think that that's that's a really, really big thing. The, the other one, which is part of that, is, is how do we use this data? So I speak about data five years ago being this deluge of unusable interesting but you know irrelevant stuff uh, whereas now we we've got the data we've got the right data and we're trying to understand how to use it better to be able to tell the financial people what it's worth so if i'm going to say you know we, we need to either we need to do this thing it's going to cost us a lot of money to get this data the question is literally what's what's it worth? what is one data record worth to us and if you've got good talented people it's worth 10 times what it is if you don't have good talented people um, so yeah, amazing. Thank you. Now, this wasn't sort of planned question, but you mentioned attention. I only say we we hosted a roundtable yesterday at New Digital Age on attention. It is you couldn't be hotter, and there's lots of uh, debate around kind of exactly what it is, and should it should it be a new metric? And you mentioned metrics and all the stuff that was thrown at you five years ago, changing. So attention. What do you see as the value of attention, and should it be a new trading currency? Um, so, yeah, so I'm a huge fan of the academics that are working in this field, and, and I really, really love enjoying uh, just trying to get to understand it because, because it becomes this question, is, you know, what are we trying to do? So I speak to a market there, so we need to move our awareness of the brand from 60% to 70%. I'm like, yep, that's great. I, I agree we should do that. And a very fair question they ask is, how much will it cost to get 10% more awareness? And, and they do mean to fight or 5% drop in awareness plus get 10. So they all understand that. And the thought is, okay, well, am I going to throw reach at you to get it there? Am I going to spend time with consumer to get it there? Am I going to get more attention? And, and I think the, you know, we, we, we speak about two key metrics. We speak about reach and time with the consumer. 
And it, it, it's coming to the thinking that, that actually sometimes we just want your low attention just to go, oh, that's the brand. Remember me the next time you go to the pub. And sometimes we go, well, actually, I'm trying to get you to pay a super premium price for a very, very premium beer that's got a whole story behind it. I need your attention for a bit longer time to spend some time with you. And as I say, the only two metrics we had there was reaching people or spending a certain amount of minutes with them. Um, and as a business, we do that. Okay, So we do activations, pub promos. You'll go to our events where we've paid money so that you can come and spend half an hour with us. And I think this attention thing is really, really interesting. And, and I say it like a layman, but I've read the, read the research and it's, it's really good in that there is, there is a very clear indication of when people are paying high attention and low attention. And the one isn't necessarily better than the other. That's what I really love. So, you know, I, I was a huge fan of, um, of, of the, you know, the, the discussion of must I glue somebody down for 60 seconds to watch a TV ad? All, you know, all creatives will tell you, obviously, people want to watch all 60 seconds away because it's amazing. And what we're going to do is we're going to put the logo right at the end so that they're forced to watch the end of the ad. You know, as a media person, we say, well, obviously, that's total rubbish. But it turns out that actually, if you if you if you research attention, sometimes these things don't work quite so linearly. It's a very exciting space. So definitely, look, we're talking about attention as, as the new sort of metric, and there's so many, so many different uh, technologies and techniques and opportunities out there for you. So how how in your role of head of media do you keep up to date with this incredible speed of technological change? Um, so I suppose learning all the time, just learning and reading and learning. Um, with respect, the source of the learning I've tried to change over the years. So I, when I worked at an ad agency or, or a media agency, I was that guy that stood up. I was the strategy partner that stood up and presented to you on PowerPoint my 10-slide summary of somebody else's book. Um, and I don't think that's the right way for, for, for people in marketing to get their information. Um, even, and I'm going to say something unfair, even things like mini MBA courses, you know, come on, do the whole MBA. What's wrong with you? Uh, or at least read all the textbooks that are required. Um, and nobody is supposed to read 150 books a, a year, but the books in our industry are so easy to read. The fonts are big. They're quite short. The data is quite easy to read. So it's really just, just doing that. And, and then the other thing I found really, really useful is we have excellent agencies that we work with across multiple markets. So I could name about eight to 10 of them who are really, really brilliant. And just to be able to share thoughts with them and bounce things off them, I think is, is really, really helpful. Okay, let's now talk about media fragmentation obviously the media has been fragmenting for a long time now but it's fragmenting so fast you know in front of our eyes so how do you keep up with that how do you make sure you're telling your brand story across a media that is you know it's changing by the second and it's changing by the the virtue of the consumer behavior that's that's sort of engendering it and enabling it so how do you keep up to date with media fragmentation and is fragmentation a, a threat to you or is it an opportunity um, I think well, I think it's going to be around for a long time, and I think in 30 years' time they're going to look back at us and think, think we were so simple and we had such small challenges. So, so to sit in the corner here and say, oh, wow, it's the most amazing fragmentation it's ever been and it's so complicated, um, we've just got to be a little bit more, uh, you know, we've got to look at ourselves and go, it's only going to get more difficult, I suppose. Um, I think 
I think we we have to embrace everything and we have to embrace it responsibly. So, you know, a simple 70, 20, 10 kind of principle where, you know, most of the things you do, you know, you've tried before. Some of them you, you know, somebody else has tried probably work better for them, but you haven't tried them. But then there's like 10% in some countries, we call it our innovation fund. Other countries, we just do it where we say there is an amount of money which we've set aside, which we know we're going to do on things that we've never done, that we know Unilever's never done, that we know Coca-Cola's never done. So real stuff that we're really trying. But then we set up the, the measurements so that at the end of it, usually we don't learn nothing, but at the end of it, we've learned either it works for this brand in every country or this country for every brand or, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. Um, so, so testing and learning, I think, is, is, is what we need to do. Um, in the fragmentation. And then the other part is just to be, you know, be a, a grown-up media person and try everything. Um, I remember years, you won't know the platform because it was big in Africa, well, potentially, I don't know, it was called, called Mixit. Um, and Mixit was this massive, massive platform in, in Africa, along with uh, WeChat, which kind of followed it afterwards. And I didn't know a single person on Mixit because they were only under the age of 15 and none of my friends had 15 year old kids yet. So it was, it was, uh, you know, you, but you, you've, you've got to try and get there. And if you can't try and get there, if, you know, if you find TikTok a little bit too painful to watch yourself, get somebody, I don't know, get somebody on the team to give you a two hour deep dive into TikTok. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a sportsman and we sponsor loads of sports, the Rugby World Cup. We sponsor the Formula One, many, many other things in different countries football, et cetera, you know, all sorts of things. And, uh, and I'm not a sports, sports person, but it's my duty to, to investigate these things, get on the platform, read them, try and remember the name of the guy who kicks the goal and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah. You mentioned your innovation fund. As you say, lots of, lots of brands have this. So what's, what's been the most exciting thing to come out of that innovation fund? What's in it at the moment? You know, what, does it, yeah. what does it entail? Yeah, so so a really cool story is um, we did this in Italy. So Peroni Nostrazzurro, as you would know it in the West, is our blue label top premium Peroni beer. And then Italy, we have what, what we get in many countries called Peroni Red, which is the, the bigger, broader beer that's very, very huge in that country. And we actually put a QR code onto the bottle uh, to be able to get people to go in and understand exactly where the product came from, where that particular, you know, where that, you know, the ingredients came for that bottle. And, and um, it was really good for us in that firstly, not a lot of people actually did it. We weren't expecting everybody to, but in the back of the minds of everybody, some people were hoping that, you know, in the in millions of people would scan the QR code. And of course, if you've, you know, if you've been in media, you know, it's not going to be anything like that. But at the same time, we were able to go in and really understand things about where people were, what they were doing, what time they were doing it, where they were going, and those areas of interaction, which is really important. So we took that same thinking to another country being China, and we stuck a QR code onto our TV ad. And we, with our TV ad in China, again, even though a very small percentage of people actually would scan that QR code, we were able to interpolate different things like certain different creatives were being reacted to by certain different age groups in certain different areas. And we were able to say things like, you know, we had sort of two different 15 seconders or 30 second or a 60 seconder, and we could identify in which cities and which age groups were right to be playing those different by the very small portion of people who actually reacted to the, to the QR code, even though the QR code wasn't the point. And we could have come out of the entire thing by saying, turns out QR codes don't work because less than 1% of people actually went online to go and see where the QR code was from. 
And fortunately, we, we set it up in the right ways. That's, you know, what we really need to learn is more about people and what they're doing. So more about people and what they're doing. And you mentioned TikTok, you mentioned QR codes. So how do you ensure your brand tells a consistent story across every media channel? So I think what happens often is that consumers nowadays live just seamlessly across media, different platforms, but brands often don't, which is jarring. So how do you make sure the story is consistent? Well, well, we as an industry and certainly as a company, we come from a history of creating lots of organic social content. Um, lots of our markets were have some are still small markets or were uh, distribution markets, which we would call exports. So we don't produce stuff there, um, and we're small challenger brands who are doing small stuff on a challenger brand budget, which meant it made more sense in that case to 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 create lots and lots of different content. So we're kind of fighting that because we you know, we come from this history of of people, you know, of, of, of social media calendars for the month, you know, like you must have something for Mother's Day, you must have something for Father's Day, you must have something for Easter. I'm like, well, okay. So, you know, that's that's where we're coming from. So there's a tendency to say, well, what's what's the new social? Where's our where's our new refreshed social creative? Like, well, it's the same one as you've been playing for a while, I guarantee. And the reason is because like everybody, we know that most people who buy our products buy them less than once every six months. And in those expansion markets, a lot of those people haven't bought it ever, <laughs> and they may only buy it in six months' time. So if we are going to now recreate the whole look and the feel and do something new, last time you saw us about Father's Day, six months' time we're talking about, I don't know, Dog Day or something, it's going to be really, really confusing. So what we do is we've worked particularly on our global brands around our distinctive brand assets, and we're very, very clear with our agencies what those assets are and what they aren't. So as long as we have those things, whether they're visual cues, characters, music, people, you know, smell when we do activations and things, we make sure that those come through. Um, And I think that has been our savior because it's going to take a long time to get us out of this thought that you need different creative for every quarter. Very true. So you mentioned agencies and the role they play. You mentioned agencies earlier. So let's talk about agencies and what role do agencies play especially in terms of how you do your job in telling the brand story across this massive media landscape. And what's the role of agencies, I guess, and how they're changing? It is changing. And um, as, you know, as I said, I did work at three agencies. I owned an agency and I, I have huge respect for what agencies do and can do. Um, I think the biggest thing is the fact that they work across multiple categories. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting as a beer company to know what the other beer companies are doing. So it's really interesting to know what other what other companies are doing uh, from pers- a client perspective. So I don't necessarily need to know too much about other beer companies, but it's the fact that we can go to agencies and understand what I don't know, you know, what Uber's doing and what what Mini is doing. These are really really interesting conversations that we have. Uh, we also we produce beer, we don't sell it. So to understand from agencies uh, how that we can do our bit of business better for our retailers. That's really important when they have retail knowledge. Um, There is also a problem um, with, look, agencies losing their people to Facebook and Google. You know, they they mention it themselves. Um, I I mentioned that, you know, I enjoy going to agencies to speak to really, really great people. The reality is you used to be able to go to agencies to speak to lots of really great people. Um, There's fewer of them to talk to. And I think that that is a difficulty. Um, and it's a hard one. I think they've all 
They've, they're all struggling with their revenue model. So I understand why they're struggling to retain the people. Um, I understand exactly how that, you know, that money works, but that affects the relationship. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, our, our relationship with the agency is changing slightly. And I, it could be a personal thing in that we used to think that they were suspiciously overselling us TV. They were always, you know, TV's the best, TV's the most amazing. Here's a hundred presentations from Bob, the TV providers to tell you why TV is the best. Um, and then now that the rebates have disappeared or sort of become less, now that the entire world is slightly different, suddenly they really like the partnerships. Um, those are really good. And then we, you know, we heard from one of the agencies the other day, suddenly Snapchat is amazing. So apparently Facebook's terrible, but Snapchat's really cool. I'm like, oh, come on. So, you know, what I speak to the markets often about is we're, we all run businesses. Uh, they run a business, we run a business, and we all just need to be healthily skeptical about everything. So, you know, if you keep on seeing the same outdoor proposal in every single presentation, then you've got to ask yourself, maybe they really love it, but it's okay if there is a, you know, a business reason why they're doing it. Um, and I think the, 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 the last thing which I find really, uh, really, really interesting is we have two different types of agencies. We have digital agencies and we have traditional agencies. And even though the traditional agencies have digital teams, they're not digital agencies. They don't believe in it. They don't really believe in first party data. And I think they all took a sigh of relief when they were told that, oh, don't worry, from now on, 60% of all of your work can just be on this old traditional TV and outdoor stuff, whereas 40% can be that little digital thing that we really didn't really want to do in the first place. Um, and when we have agencies, particularly in China and Asia, who are fully embracing of exactly where digital comes from, they're able to make the crossover very, very easily. Fascinating. I mean, what do you think of, you say, it's true, that agency staff being snapped up by likes of Facebook and TikTok et al. So let's yeah. talk about the, the platforms. Well, how is your relationship with the platforms, you know, the big tech platforms? And how, how's that changing? Well, um, I think they're really great. They've always got fantastic teams. Um, <laughs> it's a different situation because we are far less important to them than we ever were to the agencies, as in we can command less time. That that beautiful long tail of their business, meaning the mom and the pop shops and all of that business is, is way, way more important. I mean, if I think back to 15, 20 years ago and some countries where we still are, you know, very, very traditional media, you know, we're, we're, we, you know, we, we're big, you know, we're, we're, we're an important spender. Um, and when you deal with a TikTok or a ByteDance or a Facebook, et cetera, you've got to, you've got to readjust your, your attitude and say, yeah, we're just one of many, literally millions of their customers. Um, and they've got amazing platforms. Uh, all we can learn from them is what their platforms can offer, uh, what other people are slightly doing on their platforms. Um, and I, I like that. Um, there is... There is no doubt to the relationship because you know if you go to ByteDance, they are selling you Douyin and TikTok. That's it. And you can just take it for face value. Uh, whereas there's sort of always a suspicion with the agencies whether they just like them, don't like them with this deal. Um, and I must say it's it's not too difficult to deal with all of them uh, because they're just really, really well organized. Um, they're actually a, a delight to deal with, which I suppose is a challenge for agencies. Well, definitely. 
So the other sort of constituency, I guess, it's important to any brand are, are publishers outside the likes of Facebook, which is actually called a publisher, uh, the, pub, the big publishing groups. And there's a lot of talk now about the need for brands to be cognizant of where their media budget goes, i.e. what it's supporting. Is it supporting quality journalism? Is it supporting something that's perhaps a bit more, uh, what's the word, dodgy? <laughs> so what's your view on that? What what? How should brands be reacting in terms of where their media budget is going and what it's funding? How is your role with ch- relationships or publishers changing? Well, I think on two levels, we've got sort of an, uh, you know, we've got addition because we do sell alcohol and in many markets, we are in dark markets and in the markets which aren't dark markets where you can't advertise alcohol, we need to act more responsibly than the legislation. So, you know, France is a great example. France, they have a law which is very, very clear on what you can and can't do. The reality is if we push the law, it'll get more strict. So we have to be more strict on ourselves to keep it that way. So our, when we talk about brand safety and we were talking environments we appear in, uh, we're actively making sure that we are absolutely, you know, for example, we, in most countries, we will absolutely not be seen drinking, being drunk by under 25s, even if it's a 0.0% alcohol. Um, we will, there's environments that we just absolutely wouldn't be in. Um, and then I suppose the second thing uh, uh, which, which you're talking about, which is, you know, we, <laughs> we, we really do need to understand what that relationship is with the publishers all the way. Um, I don't know if this is what you meant, but there is, a, there is a discomfort when you speak to anybody in procurement or finance about where the money's really going. Um, and you know, even the simple question like data. So, so our, our data targeting is very, very broad. Other than what I just told you about age groups, we just generally need to speak to everybody because we're broadly available brand. Um, so there's all these line items within, you know, that which is not going to the publishers. And, you know, uh, there is a long tail of publishers that we need to get to to get our message out, to get our reach. But when, we, when we're talking about the premium places, um, that's where our brands really take the place because most of our beers are premium beers. Our five global brands are super premium beers. And as such, we need to speak to specific publishers who are super premium, in which case, very often, the conversation should be direct, not, not, not through the agency, but a direct conversation with that publisher. And um, we are not even slightly in the, in the area of being able to risk our stuff being seen in the wrong place. What about um, the role of publishers? You, you mentioned first-party data. Obviously, there's seismic changes going on with the deprecation of third-party cookies, etc. Uh, and publishers are presumably positioned often as the sort of the the new gold currency because they have first-party relationships directly with consumers, very strong relationships often. So, how do you see see that role changing in terms of? Uh, I guess it, it's first-party data and who owns it. And yeah. It is a it is a really difficult area. I mean, we we as a business we're very clear that we we have access to a huge amount of our own first party data. We have promotions, we have events, we have lots and lots of uh, consumers who drink our beers who are very happy to participate in those things. If if it's as simple as a scratch card to filling in a QR code or going through a QR code, so so we have a lot of access to that. We we probably have less need to get that. Um, I think where where a lot of companies in our in our category are trying to get access to first party data is when they're trying to sell. Uh, so we sort of sell, but our customers do the selling. So if we were in a situation where we had a direct to consumer line, which we don't, 
I would imagine then, then getting first-party data from publishers would be gold. Currently, we take that over and we hand it to, you know, massive retailer who has got excellent first-party data of themselves. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Now, talking obviously about data and about technology and about the role itself of the head of media, and we keep seeing reports coming out that 30% of marketing budgets are spent on technology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how, how is that affecting the internal roles of your company? So, for instance, your relationship with the CIO or your relationship with the CMO, with the rise of all this data and technology, how are these, how are these relationships changing? Uh, yeah, fair enough question. Um, you know, there's not a single big project that we don't do which doesn't involve a cross-functional team. And the only times we've ever done it without a cross-functional team, it just doesn't happen. And, you know, that's less about the capabilities uh, than less about the politics and more about the capabilities in that it just, it just, you just hit a roadblock that you you figure you could have done. Um, There's two particular projects that we're working on at the moment. One is around first-party data, uh, where it's very, very clear that this is potentially actually a a digital team-led project that we're doing. And it's really lovely to be in my personal position where I'm very, very comfortable with big data to meet people who I honestly never thought their roles would account for this. Um, you know, we have a, we have a, in our particular business, we have a very close link between sales and marketing. So the kind of stuff that our IT, well, our digital team is doing with the, the sales team is the same technology, same program, Power BI and Tableau and those sorts of platforms. Uh, that they would be using our data. So, so we could we can only possibly do things together. Um, and frankly, um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of media people do incorrectly is they buy sort of sort of lock-on software. So maybe like a software for the social team that helps you access the Facebook data. If you actually speak to someone who's got an intimate knowledge about IT systems, they can say, oh, there's a much, much easier way of doing that. You know, like um, I spoke about Tableau, which is a really, really cool way of, dem- of of displaying big data through a fairly fancy, expensive software system. But there's also a programming language called R, which is absolutely free. And if you really speak to someone who knows coding, they can say, oh, I've got a solution for you. Um, so I think we're moving close together. I, I don't think there is any difference between digital and non-digital going forward. And I think the the, the sales and the marketing digital needs to move ever so closer together. Now, what about another big trend that's sort of gone off and on in favour over the last few years in housing? Mm-hmm. You, talk, you talked about, you know, the need for to work with specialists, but what about the this trend of what bringing the technology and the platforms and everything in-house? Do you see this as something important to you or something that's maybe a bit... Outside? Yeah, that that makes people very worried when you say the word in-housing. Um, and and I I understand why. Um, it's interesting how a lot of agencies are not worried by it at all because they understand, oh, this might mean a change in my role. It might mean actually that I can charge more for my services. So, so you know, I, th- I think people shouldn't be worried about hearing anybody talk about in-housing. Um, but I think it's like any normal any normal service. So we were talking about lawyers or media or architects. We'd say to ourselves, you know, who, who does what? Um, who in the agency is actually doing our stuff? One of the interesting things we found out was in a lot of our agencies, the agencies weren't doing the influence of it. So it's like, so you've got the telephone number of an influencer agency. That's that's great. You spoke about publishers. 
Um, some of our agencies were doing content partnerships with us, but they basically just phoned the publisher and got the publisher to do all the work. Like, well, we we also knew they're the biggest publisher in that country. We we asked you to include them. So can we just talk to them and you know we'll leave you out or we'll include you as an advisor if, if you can. So I think we we're being very clear about you know what the agencies do, what they don't really do, and somebody else does, which is which is fine, whether or not we need them. I think we as an industry have moved past that sort of 1980s, 90s thinking that your ad agency is the only go-to for everything. That's around about the time when they changed their names to brand agency, meaning don't worry, we'll do everything. And I, I remember working in South Africa years ago where a very, very, very big advertiser had fewer people in the marketing team than were in the team at their ad agency. So it's about 30 people in their marketing team and about 60 people at the ad agency. So they had effectively outsourced their entire marketing department. And, and I think we've got past that. Uh, we've, got, we've got to realize that there are certain competencies we need in-house and certain competencies we need outside. And I have to be honest, the only things we ever consider that we need in-house are things that the agencies were doing anyway. Okay, that's a very so, good answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked about a lot of things, but let's end up talking about uh, your favorite new technology or your favorite new way of thinking, or you've got so many things out there and, you know, since head of media, you've got the lucky position of seeing all of these things. So what are you most excited about in the year ahead in any form, any digital format, any digital media? So I am so sorry to say this. So you, you didn't, you didn't prepare me on this question. I have to, so I have to be incredibly honest. It's, it is the metaverse. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I say I'm sorry because so many people are writing about it. It's it's like it's like the the whole world's changed. Every, but I don't quite think the whole world's changed. I just think that there is something very very exciting in this. I I enjoyed Second Life many years ago. I enjoy open world games. I think they're really very exciting. And and I think we have this weird thing that there is a that that disconnect of marketers that that marketers don't play open world games. Marketers don't uh, interact in Fortnite. And, and they, they're kind of missing this piece, which is, which is going to very suddenly explode and take over because we know from our data that significant amount of people's time, certainly in premium beer category buyers, is spent gaming, spending time in these games and in these platforms. And, you know, your Fortnite player of five years ago in five years' time is going to be 30, 35. Um, and they're used to this way. So I think it's really, really exciting. It's a, it's a different way that we can interact. It's also a different way that we can sell. It's a different way that we can enable our customers to sell our things for us or, or on our behalf. Um, and also the other part to it as well is, you know, Facebook hasn't really openly come to us with their, you know, their formal solution yet. It's not, even, you know, some, some ideas, it's not yet. There's probably six or seven different options that we could go for. Um, nobody knows quite the right one to go for. Uh, we read articles and we've got little reports on how much money it costs to get uh, territory in certain metaverses. You don't know if that's the right one. It's a bit like investing in Bitcoin. Um, so I think it's very exciting. It'd be great to be able to get on top of that. Yes, yeah, so we talked to Tom Greenlee, a character recently on this series. He Metaverse was something he picked up on as well. I mean, do you think there's any danger of that being overhyped? You mentioned Second Life. Yeah. I remember very, very well. The magazine at the time had a had a stall in Second Life, and obviously that kind of faded away. So, is there any danger of being overhyped? Totally, and that's that's why I start with the apology because I think I think it I think it is overhyped. Um, right now, the experience. Okay, so 
on the 3D goggles, the experience is really cool. It's probably the most antisocial thing you could ever do is sit in the lounge, stick these goggles on and disappear. Um, and we learned this through cinema. We learned that 3D, uh, 3D visual goggles were great, but they make you look like an idiot. So people, you know, it just didn't catch on. So, um, so yeah, it can be overhyped. I think it is overhyped at the moment because when you look at certain, yeah, even in our category, there's great brands have done some really cool stuff, which when you actually look at it, it's like, oh, okay. It looks like a really bad game from the 90s. Um, so I think, yes, yeah, so, so it could be overhyped, but, but there's no doubt that a virtual world opportunity is probably the most exciting thing that we're going to be entering for the next 10 years. That's an incredibly perfect way in which to end. So, Ross, thank you so much. That was an absolute joy talking to you. Lovely. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. And thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.